You are listening to Bonafide Needs, Season 1, Episode 4. Hi, Mike McGill here. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. Our feature this month is a discussion with Arnold and Porter partner Chuck Blanchard on a variety of topics, including the Defense Production Act, other transaction authority, and foreign military sales. Those are all topics that have been in the news, and Chuck is able to offer an interesting perspective on all of them, given his former roles as General Counsel for the Air Force and earlier as General Counsel for the Army. Before we get to that, we'll cover a number of other important developments since our last episode. In the first segment, I'll cover the proposed Department of Labor rule on non-displacement of service employees, the upcoming ban-the-box rules for federal contractors, the Department of Defense's guidance to contracting officers on cybersecurity compliance, and the Department of Defense's guidance on economic price adjustments to combat inflation. In the second segment, PubK's Bill Over will flag several notable federal contracting headlines from the past month, including a development at the Supreme Court expected to significantly impact False Claims Act litigation. And then the final segment, which is the bulk of the episode, is my discussion with Chuck, in which we cover, as I mentioned, DPA, OTA, and FMS issues at some length. So for this first segment, we're briefly highlighting several interesting regulatory developments from the past month or so. The first is a proposed rule that the Department of Labor issued to implement a President Biden executive order to reinstate, with some changes, the regulations on non-displacement of service employees that were in place during President Clinton's and President Obama's administrations. President Biden issued his executive order in this area, Executive Order 14055, Non-Displacement of Qualified Workers Under Service Contracts, on November 18, 2021. The crux of the requirement is where there's a changeover between prime contractors on a service contract with a follow-on contract for the same or similar services, the new or successor prime contractor and its subcontractors must offer qualified incumbent employees the right of first refusal to work on the successor contract. Now, how does this work logistically? If you've dealt with the prior rule, this will sound familiar. First, the incumbent contractor is required to provide a certified list of the covered service employees as defined in the Service Contract Labor Standards, or SCA, at least 30 days before contract completion. The incumbent must update that list during that last month of performance. The list goes to the agency, and then the agency provides it to the successor contractor. The incumbent must notify covered employees that the rule applies, and that they are or might be entitled to this right. Then the follow-on team must make good faith offers of employment to the service employees who otherwise would be terminated due to the changeover. Now, are there any parameters around the offer requirement? The offer must be explicit or formal in a language the covered employee will understand, provide a deadline that allows at least 10 business days to accept the offer, that's longer than the 10 calendar days under the prior rules, and be for the same position or one for which the employee is qualified. But it can include different terms and conditions, including different pay and benefits. Contractors will be expected to avoid deviations that are intended only to circumvent the requirements. Are there any exceptions? Well, yes, but they would be narrow. 
and in fact, narrower than they were under the rules implementing President Obama's executive order. First, the rules, like the prior rules, apply only to service employees and do not apply to employees performing in an executive, administrative, or professional capacity. Second, the requirement does not apply if the predecessor contractor retains the employee. In that case, there's no requirement to extend an offer. Third, it also does not apply if the employee splits time between the federal contract and non-federal work. Fourth, the requirement does not apply if the successor contractor has reliable evidence that the employee's past performance would not justify hiring the employee. This is a variation on a prior exception, and it seems to be stricter. Before, a reasonable belief that the individual failed to perform suitably would suffice to justify not offering employment. Now, the contractor apparently will need reliable evidence that would justify releasing the individual if they were already an employee. Query whether the successor will ever have such evidence in light of the predecessor's lack of interest in cooperating in many cases and its potential liability for sharing sensitive information about an employee. A note on the exceptions. One of the most important differences from the prior iteration of these rules under President Obama is an exception that is missing from this proposed rule. Under the old rules, the successor contractor was not required to hire a covered employee if doing so would displace one of its own employees. Assuming that individual had been with the company for three months, the Department of Labor seems to have abandoned that exception, which was fairly narrow in practice, but still important to have for the scenarios when it applied. How do the requirements affect the successor contractor's staffing approach? As with the prior rules, the successor contractor is not required to maintain the predecessor's approach. It can change staffing in a way that eliminates a position through reducing total staffing or overhauling the staffing mix. The contractor has discretion to decide on the number of employees necessary for efficient performance. If a contractor is reducing the workforce from, say, 50 employees to 30 employees, it doesn't have to offer employment to all 50 employees that are displaced. That flexibility was important under the prior regime. Also, this rule carries over the requirement that if an opening arises in the first 90 days of performance, the successor must rely on the pool of displaced employees. So, for instance, a contractor can't reduce the workforce by 10 employees at the start of the contract to avoid the requirement and then hire 10 different employees in a month. Also, the proposed rule indicates that the successor contractor is expected to maximize alignment to positions held under the prior contract. Again, there's some flexibility in the rules, but it's going to be important for contractors to avoid the appearance that they're assigning positions in a way so as to avoid the requirements. Here's an interesting new twist that doesn't seem to be getting the attention you might expect. Assuming the Department of Labor sticks with it, and this aspect finds its way into the FAR, I expect it will get more attention. And that's likely to occur because it's part of the underlying executive order. Under the proposed rule, an agency issuing a solicitation for follow-on services must consider whether performance of those services in the same location or locations is, quote, reasonably necessary to ensure economic and efficient provision of services, end quote. If it is, then the agency must, to the extent consistent with law, include a requirement that the successor contractor perform in the same location or locations as the predecessor contractor. The agency can decide this requirement's unnecessary or counterproductive, but that has to be approved by the senior procurement executive and notice must be provided to covered employees so as to challenge potentially. If this requirement, which Department of Labor is calling the continuity of location requirement, does not apply, then the successor contractor still has to offer a right of first refusal, which is different from the rules under President Obama. 
but the contractor in that scenario is not required to cover relocation costs. That said, if the successor contractor allows current employees to work remotely or will allow employees under the contract to work remotely, then it has to offer that to covered predecessor employees under similar conditions. Keep in mind this is not a FAR rule, but the executive order requires FAR implementation within 60 days of finalization of the Department of Labor rule. We will cover the final Department of Labor rule and FAR rule in depth, assuming those are forthcoming. There are likely to be a slew of issues to track, including the relationship with key personnel requirements, how to price contracts for competition purposes before the competitors know the workforce requirements, how the higher bar for not offering employment is going to play out, how strictly is the continuity of location rule going to be applied, and how liberally are waivers going to be granted, what impact does all of this have on competitions more broadly and the government's bottom line in terms of costs, How's the remote work guidance going to play out? What about poison pills or the lack of cooperation from predecessor contractors where they leave the successor with a mess and then how that affects the successor's performance costs, etc.? And that's you know, probably just the fairly obvious problems. Like rings on a tree that's been cut down, you can tell how long a government contracts lawyer has been practicing by the number of iterations of these non-displacement rules they've seen. I miss President George W. Bush revoking the Clinton requirements, and so I've seen President Obama reinstate requirements, then President Trump revoke requirements, and now President Biden swinging things back the other way yet again. Shifting gears, the next item we're going to highlight relates to the federal so-called ban-the-box rules. The Office of Personnel Management has issued a proposed rule to implement the Fair Chance to Compete for Jobs Act of 2019 for federal employees. These proposed rules expand and modify the existing rules that apply to federal employees. But the 2019 law requires the expansion to federal contractors, and the existing and proposed OPM rules are the model for future regulations that will apply to federal contractors and dictate how and when they can consider the criminal histories of applicants and employees. The underlying law, the Fair Chance Act, was part of the National Defense Authorization Bill for fiscal year 2020. The law prohibits agencies, both Department of Defense and civilian agencies, from awarding contracts to contractors that violate the requirements once they're implemented. The restriction generally will prohibit contractors from requesting that a job applicant for a role supporting a government contractor disclose their criminal history prior to extending a conditional offer. There are exceptions where the law requires the company to consider the applicant's criminal history or the individual will have access to classified information or hold sensitive law enforcement or national security duties. In this OPM rule, we have at least the contours of the rules that will eventually apply to contractors. We see that there will likely be exceptions for positions designated as sensitive by OPM, the Director of National Intelligence, and also likely the General Services Administration and Department of Defense. Agencies may request exceptions on a case-by-case -case basis. And OPM will consider factors such as the nature of the position being filled and the importance of a clean criminal record to performing the required duties of the position. It remains to be seen whether that discretion will rest with the procuring agency for the contractor requirements. For the government employee rules, there's a complaint process available to applicants and penalties for noncompliance, including personal penalties for the individuals involved on the hiring side. It'll be interesting to see how exactly the requirements are modified when applied to federal contractor employees. We'll track those developments. In the meantime, contractors should keep this in mind as another federal contract compliance requirement coming down the pike. And of course, companies should be mindful of existing requirements under federal and state law. 
The third item is a memo that the Department of Defense issued in June to highlight the risk for contractors that are required to, but have not, taken appropriate steps to implement the cybersecurity requirements in National Institutes for Standards and Technology Special Publication 800-171, which most of us now just refer to as NIST SP 800-171. The memo, which Defense Pricing and Contracting issued, is styled as a reminder to contracting officers of the basic DFAR cybersecurity rules and the government's remedies for noncompliance with the DFAR's contractual requirements. As many in the audience probably already know, the DFARS requires compliance with NIST SP 800-171 through the broadly prescribed clause DFARS 252-204-7012, which dates back to 2016. There's also DFARS provisions adopted in 2020, 252-204-7019 and 7020 that relate to the assessments of the contractor's adherence to NIST 800-171 and generally require posting of an assessment score in the Supplier Performance Risk System, or SPRS. Although the memo is addressed to DOD contracting staff, it serves as a reminder to contractors of the importance of implementing the NIST requirements and having a plan of action and milestones, or POAM, for each of the 100-plus NIST requirements that are not implemented yet. The memo says that, quote, failure to have or to make progress on a plan to implement NIST SP 800-171 requirements may be considered a material breach of contract requirements, end quote. It notes the remedies available, including withholding payments, foregoing options, and partial and complete terminations. Although the memo does not mention the False Claims Act, describing noncompliance as a material breach has obvious potential implications under the FCA. The memo also notes that even where the focus DFARS assessment provisions are not applicable to an existing contract, contracting officers should consider whether to modify those older contracts to require an assessment. The memo also expresses the view that contracting officers should be confirming the presence of a summary level assessment score in the SPRS for contractors that are subject to DFARS 252-204-7012 in connection with contract actions, including extensions and option exercises even if DFARS 252-204-7020, the assessment provision, is not in those contracts. So what does this all mean? There are no changes to the NIST standards or to the DFARS, and DOD does not claim to be changing policy. But it is important because it's yet another reminder that the government is focused on cybersecurity compliance, and DOD in particular views compliance with NIST SP 800-171 standards as a material requirement not to be taken lightly. Why now? This is probably DOD's signal that while the shift to its new cybersecurity regime, CMMC, is still some ways off, and while older DOD contracts may not be subject to a standalone assessment requirement, contractors cannot wait to comply with existing requirements to safeguard any controlled unclassified information. DOD is telling contracting officials to not get complacent and indirectly telling contractors to do the same. I suppose one could argue that most contractors, Department of Defense or otherwise, do not need the reminder. The importance of cybersecurity requirements is being drilled into contractors. For instance, there was a recent GAO decision in which a procuring agency, it was the DLA in that case, unreasonably found that the awardee satisfied the NIST requirements in the DFARS. GAO decided, based on the record in that case, the awardee had not performed a basic assessment and had not posted its summary level scores to the SPRS. GAO ultimately denied the protest on prejudice grounds because the protester would not have been in line for award. But if the protester had been better positioned competitively, GAO would have sustained the protest. That decision is American Fuel Cell and Coated Fabrics Company, 
be number 420551 dated June 2nd. And it shows non-compliance can lead to a loss of contract awards. Another example is a GAO report that was issued on June 16th. It takes issue with cybersecurity risk management and compliance on more than 25 of the major DOD IT programs that GAO reviewed. It's titled, DOD Needs to Improve Performance Reporting and Cybersecurity and Supply Chain Planning. And the site is JO2210 so as DOD ratchets up its focus to address those recommendations from GAO, some of that burden is going to fall on contractors. And perhaps the best example of a reminder in this area is the department's civil cyber fraud initiative and the department's announced settlements of FCA cases that are predicated on cybersecurity noncompliance. We'll continue to report on those cases and settlements and developments in that area more generally. And the last item, which I'll just mention briefly, is the Department of Defense's guidance on addressing the effect of inflation on contractors. In our last episode, we covered GSA's acquisition letter announcing that GSA was temporarily relaxing various limitations on the ability of federal supply schedule contractors to obtain economic price adjustments to address the impacts of inflation on the cost of their business. DOD subsequently issued its guidance. In a nutshell, that guidance provides no new authority but it does provide the blessing and maybe even the encouragement to use existing authority in the right circumstances. DOD's memo, which Defense Pricing and Contracting also issued, acknowledges that the use of an economic price adjustment clause can be a proper way to equitably balance inflation risk between the government and the contractor. But DOD's flexibility is focused on negotiation of new contracts, DOD is generally not supporting modifications to existing contracts. DOD acknowledged that firm fixed price contractors are in the tightest bind, but DOD's position is that there's no authority to provide relief to those contractors unless the party's already negotiated a provision that entitles the contractor to relief for changes in economic conditions. For negotiation of future contracts, DOD offers its general guidelines on EPA clauses. To give you a sense, They provide such clauses should not be one-sided. They should allow for mechanical price increases and decreases based on indices and formulas that are agreed upon during negotiations at the outset. Flexibility should not necessarily apply to everything under the contract and should be targeted. There should be a ceiling for increases. Profit on the increases are generally not warranted. And the right to payment is contingent on funding. This flexibility is certainly something that Department of Defense contractors should explore if they haven't already in connection with contract negotiations. In our next episode, we plan to cover the case law related to disputes concerning the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on contractors, and the lessons learned from that developing precedent is relevant to these inflation issues. And that concludes our regulatory update for the month. I'm now going to hand it over to Bill for some PubGay headlines. Department of Justice has sued to block Booz Allen Hamilton's proposed acquisition of cybersecurity firm Everwatch. The government's lawsuit argues that the acquisition would reduce competition and create a monopoly bidder for a major NSA contract. Booz Allen says the merger would promote competition and allow it to compete with other large contractors like Lockheed Martin and Raytheon. As a contractor, you may ask, when is an employee not an employee? 
The Government Accountability Office has a long history of sustaining protests when key personnel become unavailable during the proposal process, and now it seems that the possible future unavailability of a key employee can cause problems for you as well. In a recent case, an incumbent contractor informed the agency that one of its key employees had given notice and would be leaving his job in a few weeks. However, the agency was in the middle of rebidding this work. The incumbent had bid on the follow-on contract and had proposed to this employee as one of its key personnel. So the agency was aware that this individual would not be available for performance, but it awarded the contract to the incumbent anyway. A disappointed bidder protested, arguing that the agency should have deemed the proposal unacceptable because of the imminent unavailability of this key employee. The agency argued that the individual was still available at the time of award and, in fact, didn't leave his job until after award was made. However, GAO was not persuaded, noting that the individual had unambiguously resigned and would not be available for performance. While the individual was technically available at the time of award, GAO said the agency should have considered how the loss of this employee would affect contract performance. This adds yet another twist to GAO's long-standing doctrine of penalizing bidders who lose key employees during the bidding process. Two recent decisions, including one from the Supreme Court, have shaken up the regulatory landscape. While neither case involved federal contracts, contractors and their counsel should be aware of the potential fallout. So let's start with the smaller tremor. A recent decision from the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit gave outgoing presidential administrations a bit more time to finalize last-minute rules. The rule in question was a Department of Agriculture regulation governing the treatment of show horses. Nothing very controversial here. However, USDA filed the rule in the last minutes of the Obama administration. The rule had been filed for public inspection, but had not yet been published in the Federal Register by the time the Trump administration took office. The incoming administration started yanking all pending rules, including this one. The Humane Society and other groups sued USDA arguing that the rule was published and that the agency had to go through the notice and comment process before it could be repealed. Two members of the D.C. Circuit panel agreed, holding that a rule goes past the regulatory point of no return as soon as an agency makes it available for public inspection. A Trump-appointed judge dissented, arguing that rules become effective only at publication. So for now, outgoing administrations have a little bit more time to squeak out a new rule. It's a small change, but one that could take on more importance in the future, depending on the nature of the rule. In a more consequential holding, the Supreme Court put a significant dent in the Chevron Doctrine. As background, that doctrine was first articulated by the Supreme Court in its 1984 decision in Chevron v. Natural Resources Defense Council. In that case, the court articulated a judicial principle that directs federal courts to defer to an agency's interpretation of an ambiguous or unclear statute when Congress has delegated the administration of that statute to the agency. The principle has become known as the Chevron Deference or Chevron Doctrine. In general terms, West Virginia sued the Environmental Protection Agency over new rules governing carbon emissions from new power plants. EPA argued that the Clean Air Act delegated to it the authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, but the Supreme Court declined to defer to the agency's interpretation of the law. Instead, the court applied the major questions doctrine to this case. Writing for the majority, Chief Justice John Roberts said that agencies may not adopt rules that are transformational to the economy unless Congress has specifically authorized such a transformative rule to address a specific problem. 
While the court has danced around this concept for some time, this case represents an explicit application of the major questions doctrine and an explanation of the court's reasoning. The ruling could limit agencies in multiple areas that affect the economy. In the near term, the decision could limit the Biden administration's whole-of-government approach to climate change, as agencies cannot assume the court will back them if they stretch the authorities in certain statutes to encompass environmental reporting or new regulations. In the long term, agencies are likely to think twice before suggesting a novel interpretation of existing statutory authorities. In the last few weeks, we've seen a lot of court activity on False Claims Act cases and controversies. The Supreme Court is examining two court splits involving different elements of the FCA. The court has already announced that it will take up a circuit split regarding the government's veto authority over key TAM complaints. In Polanski v. Executive Health Resources, Inc., a relator is challenging the government's authority to unilaterally dismiss his claims. The FCA gives the government the authority to dismiss KETAM cases, even over the objections of the plaintiff, provided it can show that dismissal is warranted. The law provides no standard the government must meet to show good cause, but historically the courts have set the bar very low. Nonetheless, the circuit courts have adopted different standards, causing several splits in opinions. The first split involves whether the government is required to intervene in a KETAM case before it can move for dismissal. The 3rd, 6th, and 7th circuits require the government to intervene, and the D.C., 9th, and 10th circuits do not. The second split involves the standard of review a court must apply when reviewing a motion to dismiss when the relator objects. The D.C. circuit adopted the SWIFT standard, holding that DOJ has an unfettered right to dismiss KETAM actions. The Ninth Circuit adopted the more stringent Sequoia Orange Standard, which requires the government to demonstrate a valid purpose rationally related to dismissal. In 2020, the Seventh Circuit created a third standard, holding that the standard at Rule 41A for voluntary dismissal applies to FCA cases. Under that fairly lenient standard, the government must show good cause for intervening in a suit if the motion is filed after the government initially declined to intervene. In Polanski, the Third Circuit aligned with the Seventh Circuit, holding that the government must intervene before moving to dismiss. In such cases, if the defendant has yet to answer or move for summary judgment, the government is entitled to dismissal with an opportunity for the relator to be heard, subject only to the constitutional bar on arbitrary government action. However, the court held that if the litigation is already past the point of no return, then dismissal must be only by court order on terms the court considers proper. The court also noted that dismissal should be allowed unless the defendant would suffer some prejudice other than the mere prospect of a second lawsuit. Polanski has asked the Supreme Court to weigh in on the question of whether the government can intervene in a case when it had previously declined to do so. He also asked the High Court to clarify the standard that should apply to DOJ dismissal requests. The Solicitor General has urged the court to deny the relator's petition, arguing that the court should preserve the executive branch's virtually unfettered discretion to dismiss KETAM cases. The Solicitor General also wrote that the courts have erred in finding that DOJ must first intervene in a complaint before it can seek dismissal, although that element is not at issue in this particular case. The Supremes also signaled they are considering whether to take up multiple cases, seeking to resolve a circuit split on the Rule 9b standard in FCA cases. The circuits have split on the level of detail a relator must provide to satisfy the particularity standard. The 6th and 11th circuits require a relator to identify at least one example of a false claim submitted to the government. The 5th and 9th circuits allow a relator to plead reliable indicia from which the court can infer that false claims were submitted. This allows a relator who lacks personal knowledge of an actual invoice to piece together discrete pieces of evidence that logically suggest claims were submitted. 
The Supreme Court asked the Solicitor General for her opinion on the issue. In response, DOJ argued that no review was needed because the split had resolved itself. According to DOJ, the circuits had largely converged on a compromise standard that would require a relator to either plead the details concerning a specific false claim or provide reliable indicia suggesting that claims were submitted. The Solicitor General also suggested that the case at issue, Johnson v. Bethany Hospice, is not the right vehicle for a 9b review, as the case involves the adequacy of the relator's allegations, not merely the particularity standard. Interestingly, the Solicitor General's brief did not bring up two other cases under cert consideration that also are asking the court to review 9b. The court has already asked the government's view on Owsley v. Fazzi Associates, which was dismissed when the relator failed to link her fraud allegations to any claims. The SG also declined to address Molina Healthcare, a Seventh Circuit decision in which the defendant is also seeking cert. The decision in Molina drew a strong dissent from Judge Diane Sykes, who said that the relator had not proved materiality because he had alleged that the defendant failed to meet only one of many contractual obligations. Given that multiple parties, both relators and defendants, are raising the Rule 9b controversy with the Supreme Court, it seems likely the court will take up one or all of these cases. And we'll be following the developments on all of these cases in the coming months. In the meantime, those splits could be resolved by Congress if the Senate takes action on Senator Chuck Grassley's proposed amendments to the FCA. Earlier this month, the Congressional Budget Office released its cost analysis of Grassley's proposed amendments. The results were probably not what Grassley hoped. While the changes would likely result in a few more successful key TAM verdicts each year, CBO also found that changes would prolong litigation and increase costs. The proposed amendments would make two big changes to the FCA. First, they would amend the materiality requirement to state that the government's decision to continue paying claims despite knowledge of fraud must not be considered dispositive of materiality when other factors could influence this decision. CBO estimated that the extra three wins each year would add about $145 million due to DOJ's recoveries over 10 years, and that amount would be offset somewhat by the increased cost of protracted litigation. Grassley's language also would adopt the least deferential standard of review for DOJ motions to dismiss key TAM complaints over the objections of a relator. District courts would be required to hold a hearing to let the parties make their cases. The legislation would also clarify that whistleblower protections extend to post-employment retaliation. This provision would address yet another circuit split, most recently addressed by the Sixth Circuit, which held that the FCA's anti-retaliation language covers former employees. It is currently unclear whether Grassley's amendments will be considered in the Senate this year. Finally, two recent decisions involving liability under the anti-kickback statute could end up before the Supreme Court. In July, the Eighth Circuit reversed and remanded a jury verdict finding that multiple defendants were liable for False Claims Act violations. The appeals panel found that the district court failed to instruct the jury that liability requires a finding of but-for causation between an alleged violation of the Anti-Kickback Act and the submission of false claims. Instead, the district court told the jury that it was enough for the government to show that the claims failed to disclose the anti-kickback statute violations, which the Eighth Circuit said was not sufficient. The government urged the court to adopt different interpretations of the 2010 amendments to the FCA, which were incorporated into the Affordable Care Act. However, the Eighth Circuit held that the statutory language was unambiguous. With this decision, the court split from the Third Circuit, which had unequivocally rejected a but-for standard in Greenfield v. Medco Health. 
In that decision, the Third Circuit concluded that the legislative history and statutory purpose of the 2010 AKS amendments was not intended to narrow FCA claims, as would happen under the but-for standard. Instead, the court concluded that causation should fall somewhere in between, requiring a plaintiff to identify at least one claim for a patient illegally referred to a defendant because of a kickback. If other courts adopt the Eighth Circuit standard, this could have a big impact on healthcare fraud cases brought under the anti-kickback statute, especially where the government alleges reimbursements were tainted by improper payments. The decision could also affect other kickback cases, given the rigorous causation standard. And of course, the split with the Third Circuit sets up the matter for a future Supreme Court review. And finally, in another recent FCA decision, the Second Circuit held that liability under the anti-kickback statute does not require corrupt intent. The Second Circuit affirmed a lower court's ruling that upheld an advisory opinion of the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General, which concluded that a drug manufacturer's prescription copay assistance program would violate the AKS. The program at issue helped pay expensive copays for heart medication. The defendant argued that the terms remuneration, induce, and willful signaled that the statute barred only corrupt payments. The company argued that its program provided no financial incentives to physicians and would be made available only after a physician prescribed medication, and therefore the program was not intended to bribe doctors or patients to use their medications, and there was no corrupt intent. However, both courts held that the statute did not contain any such qualification. The courts held that the statute bars financial incentives that could influence a beneficiary's decisions. The courts found that the program, which would have paid nearly all of a $13,000 annual copay for its drugs, fell within this prohibition. To date, the defendant has not petitioned the Supreme Court for a review of this holding. And as always, we'll keep an eye on these cases to see what further developments ensue. Back to you, Mike. It's Mike again. Thanks to Bill for those timely PubK headlines. PubK, Arnold and Porter, and this podcast will be covering developments on the False Claims Act front over coming months. The balance of this episode is my conversation with Arnold and Porter partner Chuck Blanchard. Chuck is a member of our government contracts and national security practice, and I have the pleasure of working with Chuck on a regular basis on a range of matters. Chuck has quite a distinguished background, if I could toot his horn just a bit as an introduction. He received the Fay Diploma for graduating first in his class at Harvard Law. He also holds a master's of public policy degree from the Kennedy School of Government. He clerked for Judge Edwards on the D.C. Circuit and Justice O'Connor on the Supreme Court. He served as general counsel for the Army from 1999 to 2001 and general counsel to the Air Force from 2009 to 2013. He was a two-term member of the Arizona State Senate and served as Arizona's interim Homeland Security Director. Between all of that, he's also spent considerable time in private practice, including the last eight-plus years at Arnold and Porter. As you'd expect, he focuses primarily on issues at the intersection of government contracting and national security, especially as related to the Department of Defense. For our podcast discussion, we focused on three such topics, the Defense Production Act, other transaction authority, and foreign military sales. All of these issues have been in focus recently in light of the war in Ukraine, the government response to the COVID pandemic, and the impact of inflation and supply chain shocks on the U.S. economy and the military. I was excited to get a chance to discuss these issues with Chuck. He's well-steeped in them and can offer unique perspectives based on his time with the Army and the Air Force. We hope you find the conversation interesting and useful. Hi, Chuck. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Mike. 
It's great to have you. Based on your experience as general counsel of the Army and then later of the Air Force, I look forward to getting your perspective on a range of evolving and developing issues in federal procurement shaped in a lot of ways by the events of the last few years, from the COVID pandemic to the war in Eastern Europe to major dislocations in the critical supply chains. Perhaps we could start with the Defense Production Act. I know that you had experience with the DPA authorities during your time with the Army and the Air Force and have advised companies through the use of the DPA over the past few years. For those in the audience who are not familiar with the DPA, why don't we start with an overview? So what is the DPA? What are the primary authorities in the DPA that are most relevant and how have they been used? The DPA is a Defense Production Act. It was an act that was uh, enacted during the Korean War as a way to ensure that defense materials got where they need to go and got priority. And it, and it or has evolved over time, but basically it has three main authorities. One is it allows the Department of Defense or any other government agency to issue what are called priority orders, which are, are orders that say you have to fill this order before you fill anyone else's order. So it gives priority to the defense needs of the country. Uh, second of all, it allows allocation orders, which until recently have not been used, that allow for more broad-reaching um, orders about how companies uh, allocate their their resources. It basically allows the government to tell a factory to produce something that may not be producing right now. And finally, there's a, a third priority, a third element uh, called Title III that provides for subsidies or other financial efforts to increase supply or increase the, the capacity of the industrial base. And for years, this was been used largely by the Department of Defense and to a limited extent by FEMA um, as ways to handle emergencies and to make sure defense issues got priority. But during COVID-19, it was stretched pretty remarkably to include a whole host of other type of measures that were geared toward helping with the pandemic. And Chuck, was that done within existing statutory authority? So it was essentially stretching the existing authority to use it for yeah. emergency preparedness? Yeah. And actually, they didn't even have to stretch the regulatory authority. There had already been an executive order that gave HHS uh, and FEMA authority to issue uh, priority orders and allocation orders. So they already had that authority. It just was very rarely used. It was used in a limited extent in some previous pandemics, but it was really more narrowly used. So the Defense Production Act was usually viewed as a fairly routine thing you would see in a DOD contract, and most people outside of DOD really weren't aware that it was there. And quite frankly, defense contractors didn't view it as a very big deal. They had to comply, it created some obligations for them, but it was not a big deal. And it became a big deal during the pandemic. Right. And there was a lot of educating uh, clients and the, the audience generally about the DPA, the DPA authorities, the limits, the ways that that agencies can use them during that those important months in the middle of 2020. So why don't we start with the way that the Trump administration and the Biden administration use those authorities in response to the pandemic? How would you sum up the way that the Trump administration used the authority? Well, it started out, um, the Trump administration was very hesitant to use the, the authority. As I'll just, we can discuss later, there were good reasons to be hesitant about the use of the authority. But but they reached a point where they were not getting the masks they needed for healthcare workers. They were not getting the other protective gear. And there were other shortages that were badly needed to fight COVID-19. So it really became uh, essential that they, that they intervene. 
So the Trump administration um, started first using the, the Defense Production Act, both the allocation authority and the um, priority order to make sure that they, they were able to get you know, PPE, protective gear uh, kept. And one of the issues they tried to deal with was we are a major manufacturer of some of this material, uh, and yet we were exporting worldwide. Um, so one, one thing that the Trump Commission did, which the, to my knowledge is the first allocation order since the Korean War, was basically an export ban on many um, personal protection items, which was the first time it was, it was ever really used. Mm. The, the other example where the Trump administration used the um, priority orders in, early on was for respirators. As you may recall, there was a period of time where that was the obsession. Everyone was obsessed by who mm. hospitals have enough respirators. So they used the priority order and the allocation order to get companies like GE and Philips to, to do more uh, production uh, of those items. And then later on, when the vaccines hit, the vaccine company companies that got ahead of the vaccines as part of their contract got priority orders. So they were able to improve their chances of getting material that they needed for, for the vaccine. And then have there been notable changes in the way that the Biden administration has used or or, or did use in the early stages of that administration, the authorities? I think it's fair to say the Biden administration was a little more willing to, to you, you, at least use the threat of the, the DPA. And so one thing that they that they began to do was go beyond just the pandemic, but use it for other other areas. For example, there's been recently a lot of talk about the shortage of, of infant formula and the Biden administration used its DPA authorities as one solution uh, to that issue. And were those were those Chuck the 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 carrot authority, if you will, in 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 Title Three and or the 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 rated order or allocation order authorities in Title One? Um, these were all into Title One, but the, both administrations have also used Title Three authority. Um, traditionally, the Department of Defense had used Title Three authority to make sure we had domestic industrial capacity, and sometimes that capacity would be used sporadically, and so they needed. To give a financial incentive to keep that facility alive, so it could be a you know a, a guaranteed order, or it could be an actual subsidy. Um, both the Trump administration and the Biden administration uh, use that same uh, carrot approach to help fund uh, capacity. So they they invested in capacity for testing equipment. They invested in capacity for PPE. Um, they did a lot of things to try to increase the capacity. Uh, and that was, and they also used, interestingly, used that there was money in the COVID-19 funds earmarked for Title III, which we all expected was going to be used for COVID-related activity. Department of Defense actually used that authority for other types of industrial capacity development uh, and not just COVID-19 related. And when, and when you look back, Chuck, on the way that the administrations used the DPA authority and some of the issues that created for contractors, what are some of the, the lessons learned that you took away from that experience? Yeah, I, I think there's lessons learned for the government and there's lessons learned for contractors. I and mean, I think the lesson learned for government is that there are collateral and second order effects that you may not anticipate. So for example, um, you know, there were DPA orders that were issued priority orders for, for the vaccine companies, which then use that go down their supply chain uh, and what they discovered is they were just sucking up every ounce of some of some supplies. And so other life-saving pharmaceuticals, like 
you know, chemotherapy or other therapeutics, we're literally having to shut down our supply. It, it has stopped. So the government began to realize they could not, you know, solve one problem by causing other deaths. And so uh, the government opened up, this was mainly during the Biden administration, but they actually created a person in the White House whose entire job was to deconflict these kinds of circumstances, a guy named Tim Manning. And he did a fantastic job. He was very responsive, very smart. He, he came from a business background. So, but he, in effect, became sort of an industrial supply side czar for big chunks of the pharmaceutical uh, industry. Um, and, and so I think that's, I think that that kind of tempered some of the enthusiasm as the Biden administration went into the administration for using DPA authorities, because I realized that there are, you know, yes, you can give an order, but in, you're not solving the shortage problem. If you don't solve the shortage problem, there are winners and losers, and you have to suddenly find a way to allocate the, win, the wins to the law. So that was one lesson. The, the other uh, lesson is that in for some problems, the allocation order may be the better way to go. For example, we now have a semiconductor uh, crisis, and we have multiple companies in many, many industries, all of whom are desperate for material. And one solution would be to issue each company a priority order. And for in some instances, that might be appropriate. But the, the real problem is not, you know, company by company. It's industrial sector by industry sector. Uh, for example, the medical device industry, which is a tiny part of the semiconductor market, is basically facing a, a drought. They, they, get, they cannot get the semiconductors, which means that they're having difficulty not only making new equipment, they're having difficulty even servicing the equipment that's out on the market. So an allocation order that would make sure that at least a certain percentage of those semiconductors was devoted toward the medical device industry or the automobile industry, uh, you know, might might be a more effective way. Now the administration has not gone that route, uh, but it strikes me that it, it it's a lesson it ought to learn. I think for contractors, uh, the the big lesson is you need to be aggressive if you need a priority order to meet an emergent need. It's so not not being shy to ask for it. And, and even if you don't get a priority order, sometimes you can find that the people in the government can help you solve your supply chain problems. So the Tim Manning that I was talking about before, in many instances, even though there was not a priority order, he was able to make phone calls. And those phone calls, maybe even the, the implied threat that a DP order may be coming down the pike, uh, you know, caused the supply issues to go away. So, so that's it's an important issue. And finally, the, the, the final point for both the government and for the uh, contractors is, you know, we're all obsessed with the priority order and the allocation order, but they don't solve the shortage problem. In the long term, you need to solve the shortage problem. And the way you solve that is either by decreasing your demand, which is not going to really happen, or by increasing the industrial capacity we have either here or in our close allies. And, and for that, the Title III uh, authorities are the way to go. And so uh, sometimes the, the best way that a company can, can advocate for itself is not try to get a priority order, but to see if they can do a, d a deal under Title III that would give them more capacity uh, to, to produce what they need to produce. And Chuck, you mentioned how companies that are higher up in the supply chain can use a priority order to manage their supply chain to incentivize and motivate their supply chain to meet government demand or, or U.S. demand more broadly in this instance. But 
there the shoe was on the the other foot for some companies in the supply chain and so it wasn't welcome to receive a rated order either directly from the government or, or an allocation order uh either directly from the government or flow down from a contractor through the supply chain and so any thoughts for companies that find themselves in that situation where they're receiving, especially for the first time, so they don't have experience with this receiving a rated order or especially an allocation order and what they should be thinking about when they first receive that. Well, scattered at the government are these supply chain organizations and DPA organizations. And what we found is communication with them about the problem oftentimes help resolve it, where it may be that the need that's being flowed down to you is not as urgent, and therefore there can be can be some flexibility. But you have to comply with the order and, until that flexibility is granted. But but by going to the government and trying to get that that kind of flexibility uh, built in can be very useful. How do you deal with issues, Chuck, around uh, pricing, negotiation of terms that are not necessarily straightforward to negotiate, like allocation of IP rights and delivery schedule? How do you handle those when you get one of these orders that plops down on your desk? I think you first need to look at the order um, and make sure that you could meet the order, that it offers a delivery schedule. Because you're allowed to reject an order that offers a delivery schedule you cannot meet. But if you do reject it, you're supposed to offer a delivery schedule that does work for you. And by the way, in delivering that delivery schedule, you can't prioritize other people. This assumes it's just a mere issue of production. But I think the first thing is just to make sure you are comfortable with the schedule. And also understand that the, the rule of the DPA is that you're supposed to use your, your usual pricing and your usual uh, terms and conditions. And so if the terms and conditions that are being demanded are ones that are beyond what you usually offer or less favorable to you, that's a basis to, to push back as well. On the other hand, it's not an opportunity to increase the price or get more favorable terms than what you would offer other customers. That's a a really good way to have a knock on the door by a law enforcement officer if you try to use the DPA order for, for price, price gouging. Right. Uh, so if you can meet the order, you should. And the, the good, I guess, it, the, the silver lining of a DPA order is if it, if it causes you to breach another contract, you're immune from liability. On the other hand, most companies, even if they're immune from liability, don't like to breach contracts. They don't like to hurt their re- re- reputation. So if it really is a serious, serious problem, like it, it's going to really affect your business in a, in a serious way, there are pl- touch points throughout the government in different agencies where you can come and discuss the issues that the DPA order is causing. And, and that might very well be uh, an avenue you should use to try to communicate the issues. And you might find that there's going to be more flexibility during during both the Biden administration and the Trump administration, we found great success in companies going to Operation Warp Speed and explaining the consequences of the DPA order and seeing if there's going to be some timing flexibility. And in many cases, we found that there was that kind of flexibility. Great, Chuck. Thanks. And it's probably worth noting that the the liability protection that's afforded under the acceptance of that type of an order generally is limited to liability for contractual breach to other parties and doesn't necessarily extend to third party uh, tort liability, which can be an open issue. And it's something else that that companies need to think about. So to to shift topics slightly, another development over the last few years that also relates to pre-existing authority, but used in ways that 
certainly expand upon prior uses is other transaction authority and, and so-called OT agreements or OTAs. We've both worked on a number of OTAs, including those related to some of the vaccines and therapeuticals and rapidly, rapidly deployed technologies that were rolled out in response to the pandemic. Why don't we again start with some of the basics? What is OT authority? How is it different than standard procurement authority? And how was it used generally in response to the pandemic? Yeah, other transaction authority, is, it really is just that. It's a, an agreement with the government, but it's not a FAR contract. It's not a cooperative agreement. It's not a grant. So it's not subject to all of those rule sets that otherwise would apply. So it's, it's an agreement that allows for more flexibility. And its origins come in the Space Act, uh, where NASA was able to use this kind of authority to do some very innovative kind of contracting. And then over time, various agencies have been given this authority. Some agencies have it, some don't. For example, Commerce Department does not right now have that authority, but Health and Human Services does, and a DOD does. And each department has very unique authorities. During the pandemic, the DOD authority was found to be very useful. And the, the reason it was useful, because it said that if you uh, have a contract to develop a prototype, an R&D type contract to develop a prototype, and you compete that, and then you down-select to uh, you know, one or more folks, and then they successfully produce a prototype, you can then do a follow-on FAR contract for the production of that prototype without doing competition. So it really uh, was, was ready-made for the kinds of issues that they were facing with the vaccines or with therapeutics. We wanted a co the companies to develop a vaccine, but we don't know it's going to work. But it, if it worked, we want to order that right away. And so for the, the model for almost all the vaccine companies and for most of the therapeutics was an other transaction authority that was used to develop the vaccine and then a, a FAR-based contract as a follow-on contract to actually produce it. Although we put, they pushed the envelope a little bit by defining the prototype to be 100 million doses of the vaccine. You know, it was a pretty large prototype, but it was, you know, to show that we could in fast order produce 100 million uh, doses. And, you know, I think for the pharmaceutical industry, there are many ways this was a more attractive vehicle. One is most pharmaceutical companies are used to dealing with commercial item contracts where they don't have to worry about costs, uh, cost accounting compliance. And a lot of the usual DFARs and FARs clauses don't apply. And the concern was, though, with an R&D kind of contract, they suddenly would have had to completely change their accounting systems. Um, and that would have been, you know, it, it's quite frankly something they, they probably weren't willing to do just for this one-off kind of project. So allow them to effectively take the commercial item treatment and put it in the R&D world as well. The other thing that was attracted to pharmaceutical companies is if you're a pharmaceutical company, your most valuable asset is your IP. Mm. Um, and a lot of the traditional rules um, under uh, Bayh-Dole even though you have titles of patent, you still had to give a license to the government and you had marching rights and all these other issues. A lot of that was very troubling to a lot of pharmaceutical companies. And so they were able to have, have a more fine-tuned uh, approach. The government was, was on a pushover. Most of those contracts still included something that looked like a marching right. But on, on some of the data that otherwise would be giving the government unlimited rights, um, instead, it was it was more government purpose rights or, or limited rights. So it, it was a more nuanced approach toward IP. And Chuck, some of these contracts were for development. 
some were for development and production and delivery, as you alluded to, uh, and then some were just for you know, production and delivery, correct? Right. And then there were some contracts that were you know, just uh, increasing capacity. Mm -hmm. um, so those those kind of terms are reused. But OTAs were, were not sort of invented during the pandemic. They, they, right. uh, DOD has been very aggressive. For example, uh, there was a competition just a few years ago it was a billion-dollar effort, so it was not a small effort, but it was an effort to sort of create the next generation of, of rockets. And it was a contract that gave a billion dollars to United Launch Services, and it gave a billion dollars to Jeff Bezos' company, Blue, Blue Origin, to develop a new rockets. Um, and it was done not as a procurement contract, not as a grant, but as a as an OTA. You know, and that was pretty remarkable. So, it, you know, vaccines show that you can do billion-dollar deals under the other transaction authority, which has caused concern by by some folks because there there's a concern about a lack of accountability. So, for example, if you do a an OTA, that's not subject to the Competition and Contracting Act, which means you don't have a vehicle to go to the claims court, and you don't have a vehicle to do a bid protest in the GAO. Your only recourse is a APA in the district courts, who are just, as we know, not really all that familiar um, with this um, area of the law. And, and you have a DOJ that finds a way to find no jurisdiction in any vehicle you go to. Uh, so it, it does remove some of the usual safeguards in terms of bid protests, which for some people is a plus and for other people is a, is a minus. It also means that all the bar clauses and debar clauses that would otherwise be mandatory. A lot of them are no longer mandatory. And again, that's a plus, and you know, for 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 some clients, um, but for some folks, it it was a way to get uh, do an end run around the the usual rules. And so, um, I think I think there's a push and pull in Congress right now about whether the use of OTA authority is something to be encouraged or something to be discouraged. I mean, my perspective is that there's a, a big universe of companies out there that are largely commercial companies. For whom doing work for the government is a very small part of their business, and quite frankly, living with the usual FAR and DFARS clauses is a reason for them not to want to really be innovative or do much with the government. Um, with an OTA, where they can negotiate something that makes more sense, I'm seeing a little bit more enthusiasm. I mean, there's been a lot more enthusiasm, for example, in the life sciences um, companies to do deals with BARDA or DOD or with NIH, uh, if they can do it as an OTA. And Chuck, I think you alluded to, to this. This is certainly something that, that I saw in my experience, which was, although OTAs, although the authority provides the basis for the procuring agency, DOD in this case, to avoid certain of these procurement rules, certain, but both procedural and then in terms of solicitation provisions, contract clauses, but in a lot of cases, both on the government side and then in some cases on industry side, there's a there's a there's an inclination to default back to those rules. Did you see that as well? Oh, absolutely. I I, I can't tell you how many times I would see a markup of an OTA and the government would say, "We need to add this. It's required by the DFARS." And I and I, I literally had a shortcut way for me to just simply push a button and it would say the DFARS does not apply. This is a negotiable item um, because that happens so often. But you know, this is a, especially on issues like IP that are you know well defined, 
The rules are pretty clear. It's, it's just human nature that you revert back to what you know. And that's certainly true of the government lawyers who live and die by the DFARS clauses. But I think for a lot of for a lot of contractors, you know, initially it's a great idea. Let's let's do our you <clears throat> a a, an exquisitely negotiated kind of uh, deal, they realize that's hard and that there's more certainty sometimes by going going back to the usual way of doing things. And so I find that in the end, there usually is the framework looks like the normal IP framework, but it's just revised at the edges. And so instead of giving government purpose rights to, um, or giving unlimited rights to everything because it's being funded completely by the government, They'll revert instead to government purpose rights, or instead of having government purpose rights suddenly um, turn into unlimited rights after 10 years, if the IP is, the government doesn't care about that. They, they, they just want government purpose rights, so they'll waive the, the conversion. So there, it's, it's things like that at the margin that I think um, become more attractive. But it requires, quite frankly, a, a party on both sides that really understand what it is they want to accomplish. If, if you've got a party on the other side that just has a rule book and they're going to follow the rule book, it just doesn't work. And and we found that, quite frankly. We, we For a lot of the vaccine deals did not end up at DOD. Uh, they only ended up at DOD after failures at, uh, through other routes. Because of lack of flexibility, uh, DoD, you know, a lot of it has got a lot of good things, a lot of bad things, but it has a very talented group of procurement people who've been used to doing things a little differently, and so they were able to pull together a group of people um, at DoD that that understood what what was really at, at stake and were able to to do deals as a result. Another aspect of OTA contracting that is somewhat different is, in a lot of cases, there's a consortium involved. And that is also not new to OTA contracting, but the companies that were coming to this form of contracting for the first time during the pandemic learned about that. Were most of the deals that you worked on, Chuck, did they involve, were they through and did they involve consortia? I would say mo not all, but most were. Um, during the COVID-19, the major player uh, at DOD was the joint program office for for chemical, biological, and nuclear warfare. I, I have to say a, a, an incredibly talented group of people. The, the main guy we were dealing with, you know, used to work in the vaccine world, so he knew the science. And they used a consortium MCDC uh, for most of the contracting. And so, uh, and, the, and the way that would work is they would give you this horrifically horrible contract that you were not able to negotiate called a base agreement. And then in the statement of work, you would basically exempt out everything that was of concern. So it, it, it took a while for our clients to, to not want to you know, negotiate the base agreement. And it, you know, they quickly learned that that's, that's sort of the template. And then you'd negotiate the real deal in the, in the statement of work. Uh, and that worked out pretty well, I, I have to say, because for routine kinds of work, the base agreement was fine. It was just for these, you know, particular agreements. But we found I, I did, we did deals with both large, large companies doing major, major vaccine and therapeutics, where they had all the bargaining power in the world, and, and I expected them to have an agreement that would be, that would be, you know, be deviate from the norm. But I also had some deals for very small startup type companies that had some really innovative technology, and I was surprised to see some of the same flexibility on the government side. If it was important to you and it was not important to them, they were willing to give. That's interesting. And that that's a, a nice introduction, Chuck, to my last question, which was, 
how much of these lessons learned are really going to inform the future experience with OTAs? Because this was such a unique situation where there was so much pressure on the government to get these contracts in place. In a lot of ways, a lot of pressure on companies to participate and cooperate. How much of these lessons learned, how much of these experiences are really going to apply when the opportunity to use an OTA, well, whether there's an opportunity to use an OTA in the future, and then the possibility of negotiating OTAs in the future. So I'm curious as to your thoughts on that. I think the contracting people, the government are, are, are different and they're a little less used to dealing with this, but, but I'm seeing the same kind of flexibility and JPEO is still the main program office. Um, and they're, you know, they're fantastic. They, 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 what, what I like about them is they, they know what's important for them and they know what's not. And they know more importantly, they know what's important to the industry and what is not. And that I think that allows for for more uh, negotiation. I think what will be really interesting is to see if we move away from the NASA has one authority and DOD has another authority, whether there'll be an effort to sort of have a government wide kind of OTA authority that might build in a little more safeguards. And for, you know, for, if you're going to compete billion dollar deals through OTAs, maybe you ought to have some type of GAO jurisdiction. Hmm. You know, maybe there ought to be some uh, checks and balances. And the lesson from DOD with the model of a prototype, you compete that, you can do a follow-on. That, that's a really good model because oftentimes we fund prototypes that then sit there doing nothing. They're not, there's, there's, it's a valley of death. They're never picked up. They're never done because it's just too hard. So I think this model of do a prototype, compete it, have a down select, but if it works, you like it, then you can immediately go into full production. I think it's more likely to um, to, to have the kind of tech transfer uh, that the DOD wants, and I think NASA would want, and I think um, other agencies might as well. I mean, clearly in the healthcare area, you know, we use DOD authorities to basically solve a pandemic. Well, those authorities, ought to reside where they really are needed, which mm -hmm. is uh, in HHS. And now Commerce Department is facing this huge crisis with the, the chip shortage where they've got the lead on that issue and they've got no authority to do an OTA at all. And maybe, um, you know, and, and I know that as part of the House bill on the, the China competition bill includes giving uh, Commerce Department the same authority that NASA has for OTAs. And so maybe, um, you know, they'll get, then have that authority that they can then use to help solve the, the competitiveness problem. It'll be interesting. And, and of course, Chuck, I hope you'll help us continue to track the, the, the potential legislative developments in the area. To, to shift topics again slightly, another catalyst that's been affecting federal procurement and the defense industrial base is, of course, the war in Ukraine this year. The U.S. is directly responding with certain support, and then there are the, the second order effects, including greater demand and the expectation in the near term for greater demand for U.S. defense technologies from allies in Europe and throughout the world. This implicates a range of legal and contracting issues, obviously. But why don't we start with some of the ways that U.S. defense contractors sell systems, technologies to foreign sovereign buyers? What are some of the what what are some of the avenues for those sorts of sales and transfers? Well, the the two main efforts are what are called um, uh, FMS uh, military sales, FMS sales, which are done through the Department of Defense, where the Department of Defense is actually a procuring entity, 
and you're actually selling to the United States that then sells uh, to the foreign government. That's one vehicle that's used. Another vehicle that's used is uh, direct commercial sales, where instead of using DOD as a middleman, you sell directly to the German defense ministry or you sell to the Israeli defense ministry. And on top of this, while most foreign military sales and most direct sales are the government you're selling to pays everything, then they pay an administrative fee to the DOD to do the deal. There's also something called uh, FMF, um, which is federally funded military financing, where they are basically for certain countries financing a big chunk of their purchases. And they're financing, some of those might be FMS, some of those might be direct commercial sales. And so um, Israel and Egypt are the two best examples where a big chunk of the Israeli defense budget is funded by the United States. It's done out of an office in New York that, that, that contracts with U.S. companies. Um, and then they either were direct sales or sometimes for things like the F-35 or, or FMS. And so what what, what is the process if, you, if you've got a, a customer agency, Chuck, they come to the Department of Defense or they go to a U.S. defense contractor with a need. How do you go? How does the process, how do you get from that step, the the expression of the interest and the, the weapon system or the technology to actually purchasing and, and, and the ultimate delivery of that technology? Well, in, in most cases, with, no matter which route you use, there's an export control element here. Because um, uh, usually you are talking about munitions which are on the ITAR list. Uh, so you need an export license to export. And that authority is sometimes used to decide that certain weapon systems are only gonna be sold through an FMS approach through the Department of Defense because they want complete control. So the way that works is that the country that wants to buy something does a, a letter of intent to the Department of Defense. That's then used to uh, by Department of Defense to to build a case, they, they, they negotiate a contract or, or they do a procurement for a contract. You know, sometimes there's only one supplier like Lockheed for the F-35, but sometimes there can be a competition. And then that package, once it's, they agree to it, then goes to Congress for a certain amount of days. It, it depends on how large the, the procurement is and which country it is, but usually it's a 30 to 60 day kind of uh, review process where Congress can say no if they want to. They can they can raise hell, and they they, they sometimes do, uh, and, we'll, and, we'll do and we'll delay things. So that's the FMS approach. The direct military sales, there it really is a commercial deal where the government of the United States is only involved as a regulator. They're, they're, they, they provide the export license, but otherwise it is a commercial deal, a commercial contract between, let's say, the government of Germany and uh, the defense contractor. And the terms are set. There's no FAR or DFAR clauses. It's just whatever Germany and you can agree on. For the various stakeholders, Chuck, so defined broadly, U.S. government, U.S. defense contractor, U.S. sources, and the foreign country purchaser, how do they look at the pros and the cons of the different approaches? I think most common, the country that's buying is really the one that makes the decision. There are some countries who view the FMS process as, as a safer approach where all the hard work is done by the United States. The United States knows this very well. They've got processes. Um, they know the, the contractors. And, and a lot of the, the procurement risk is, gonna, is really accepted by the United States and not mm -hmm. by that country. So that, a lot of countries like it that way. Other countries like Israel have developed sophisticated buying operations 
where they would prefer to sort of have you know their own agreements. And so they, they prefer the negotiated agreement with the United States. So I think it really depends on, on, on the two. I mean, there are, you know, and from the contractor point of view, the, FM, the trash in the FMS is you, you're dealing with a customer you're used to dealing with, the Department of Defense. Um, the bad news is you're dealing with a customer you know, uh, and you may not like uh, Department of, uh, of Defense. And you may, so it, it, some, sometimes there's more, the contractors like dealing with that rather than a country they've never dealt with before. But sometimes they would prefer to sort of do a, a deal directly with the government. So I think it really depends on people's comfort level. I think for a, a company that's used to dealing with the Department of Defense, FMS is very comfortable. If they're, if they're used to being more entrepreneurial, then a direct commercial sale um, may be the way to go. But, you know, but there are you know, d- different rule sets. And, and again, sometimes the, the government's going to force you to go FMS you can't, you, know, you can't sell a major weapon system in most cases as a direct commercial sale because usually there are a lot of end user agreements and there's a lot of government to government and there's a lot of government to government sensitivities um, where they really they want to have complete control of the purchase. And how, if at all, Chuck, do do competition mandates, U.S. competition mandates play into this these decisions? If it's FMF. Uh, the government requires you, the country, to have some type of competition. It's not that's not that's not to be done through the U.S. FM, you know process, but they they want competition. If they're going to pay for it, they're going to impose competition. If it's a direct commercial sale, it's really up to the country. If they want to they want to sole source everything, they can sole source everything. If it's an FMS sale through the Department of Defense, competition is the default. But if, but if the federal government's not paying for it, and the country says, "Gee, I want this." We've looked and we want this, the solution, but the rules allow an exception for competition. And right, that possibility, Chuck, that certainly the demand at the end of the day is coming from a foreign purchaser. And so you certainly have marketing activities and relationships that are that are focused from, from U.S. defense sector right. prospective sellers to those potential foreign buyers, which implicates a host of issues that... Um, with respect to to marketing, contingent relationships, and so forth, how does the Department of Defense look at those issues and attempt to regulate them? If it's an FMS or FMF, either they're involved as actually doing the procurement or they're funding it, uh, there's a set of rules that apply, for example, on contingent fee arrangements. And they're different. For FMS, it's basically a uh, the, the concern is disclosure. And the concern is that it that it be a bona fide uh, sales arrangement where people are earning their keep by doing work other than through influence. You know, if it's an effort for bribery, it's not going to be allowed. But but generally with the FMS, the rules are if it's a bona fide sales arrangement that's reasonable, then it's okay that they'll, they'll permit it. In the FMF, where the government's paying the bill, they bar it. They will not spend any federal m- money on commissions. Now, you can pay commissions, but it cannot be u- using U.S. dollars to pay commissions. And so, you know, commissions are very common, and they, but they still have to be disclosed. And so if you look at the FMF form, as, it says, you know, commissions paid and then commissions charged uh, to this contract. And, and if the answer is not zero, the United States government will reduce its FMF funding to the country. So most countries have a rule that if that that number is not a zero, 
uh, you're not getting the contract. Right. And the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, of course, applies broadly to, exactly. to, to all these activities. And then if it's ITAR-related materials, there's also um, disclosures you need to file about your use of brokers and commissions paid and, say, and marketing fees paid. So there, there's, a, there's an export control ITAR overlay, which only applies in this instance to uh, direct com commercial sales. Since, since technically, when you're selling through the Department of Defense, you don't need an ITAR license because the government's the one that's doing the selling. I think that's really helpful, Chuck, because again, there haven't been any major developments on the legal or contractual front in the FMS and, and direct commercial sale area, but I think we're going to see an uptick in these types of purchases. And so I think it's helpful to have a refresher and to have your unique, unique perspective. So for a final question, just sort of interested in your views broadly, what what issues are you are you most focused on, uh, and from a policy perspective, in terms of procurement policy, uh, especially at the Department of Defense, over the next six months to a year, what are you what are you most interested in following and and seeing uh, what the department might do? I think there's an emerging theme that's arising, which is our need to match the Chinese technological levels of development. Um, and if you see what they're doing in certain areas, particularly in space, their technological development is, is very, very fast. And ours tends to be very, very slow. We tend to procure more slowly. So, so we will put a satellite into space five years from now, based on the information we have now. And the concern is that that satellite will be obsolete by the time it goes in. So I think, I think there is a, a lot of talk particularly in the space area, for how we can more quickly get solutions that are responding to the threat in real time. And, and I don't think we're there yet, um, but I can tell you there's a lot of focus on that, particularly in space. And so part of it will be um, changing the way the Space uh, Systems Command in Los Angeles operates. Some of it will be using ancillary Right, rapid capability offices to deal with that off, that issue. I think OTAs may be one of the solutions. Mm -hmm. and, and, and also it's rethinking the entire approach where we don't need a billion dollar solution. We need several $100 million solutions. And that, that that's the, the way we're gonna respond is maybe not having the best satellite in the world up there, but having you know 100 really good satellites up there that can be easily replaced um, if they're not meeting the need. Great, very interesting, Chuck, thanks. Um, and, and thanks for taking the time, um, very interesting. And hopefully, you know, if we twist your arm, maybe we can get you to come back, uh, you know, six months or so. Thanks so thanks much. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. If you're interested in learning more about any of these subjects, please check out our show notes, where you'll find links to background materials and other information related to the subjects that we covered. Thanks again to Chuck Blanchard for taking the time to share his insights on the Defense Production Act, other transaction authority, and foreign military sales. Those are all important and timely topics that we will plan to continue to cover on this podcast. And thanks to Bill for his substantive contributions and his production skills as always. And lastly, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Bonafide Needs. We hope you enjoyed it. Please subscribe to this feed wherever you get your podcasts and look for new episodes coming soon. Until then.
Unified Needs is a joint production of and copyright Arnold and Porter, providing legal advice and thought leadership for government contractors, and the Pub K Group, publisher of daily news and insights for government contractors and their counsel. This podcast is produced by Mike McGill and Bill Olfer.